Hi everyone and welcome to the Monday Night Meditation Service. The reading of the day, which has been attributed to the Buddha, is thus. I do not believe in a fate that falls on men, however they act. But I do believe in a fate that falls on them, unless they act. Do not dwell in the past. Do not dream of the future. Concentrate the mind on the present moment. So welcome everyone. So that beautiful passage that I wrote, that I read, uh, is attributed to Shakyamuni Buddha. Now, something I've been saying over the last few uh, Dharma talks is that what are the words of the Buddha? So there are some traditions within Buddhism that say only the words found in the Pali Canon, or maybe in the Agama scriptures, only those words can we say are authentically Shakyamuni's. But the problem is, everything that we have, as far as a written record, of the words attributed to Shakyamuni, all of those were written centuries after the historical Buddha lived and died. So, we don't know exactly what Buddha said. However, the thing is, is that Buddhism is a living tradition. And what that means is that each generation raises up teachers, and those teachers nourish and grow communities. And it's from that that we have the continuity of the teachings. Many of the sutras in the Buddhist tradition were written a millennia after the time of the Buddha. But we are not a people of the book. In other words, we're not looking for uh, some kind of infallible, original concept around uh, Buddhism. We see the Dharma or the Buddhist teachings as a living, living good news. And so each generation will find its own way to speak and teach in a way that connects for contemporary persons, which is our effort here at the Dragonfly Song. So, who did offer that, that great passage? And what's really fascinating about this is that a lot of these quotes I'm getting from a book called The Words of the Buddha. Now, I'm not going to say who the publisher is or anything like that, because I don't want anyone to um, take it negatively. But a lot of the quotes in there are not actually found in the Buddhist canon. But a lot of things get attributed to Buddha. Um, one, wisdom is wisdom, right? And even though uh, the Buddha did not say these words, there's a lot in here that, as a Buddhist, we would agree with. So the actual person who penned these words was a Christian apologist by the name of G.K. Chesterton. And Chesterton's words uh, and his teachings were all uh, around Christianity. In fact, he was a big influence on people like C.S. Lewis. And he had some really wonderful things to say. Um, some I would not agree with, and other wonderful things that he did offer that were wisdom. And would certainly be words for me to contemplate and meditate on. 
Now I am going to give you another quote that actually is attributed to Shakyamuni within the Buddhist tradition. I, I do want to say this, that the, the protean evolution of Buddhism, um, a part of that passage is that some in the Buddhist community have yet to fully relinquish the idea that there is such a thing as a true Buddhism that exists somewhere unchanged in the past. Um, not only is this true for the Buddhist community, but you also see this in other traditions. Christianity, for example, has had movements to return to the original uh, teachings of Christ, or the original charisma. But again, we're, we're not hung up on that. For us, the Buddha is speaking and living through all of us. And any words of wisdom that align with the three principles of oneness, regardless of their source, we could consider God. So, let me give you the actual quote that is close to the one that Chesterton offered, but it's more specifically about this idea of karma. Because in the quote by Chesterton, he says, I do not believe in a fate that falls on men however they act, but I do believe in a fate that falls on them unless they act. Here are the words attributed to the Shakyamuni Buddha. So any clergy or contemplatives who are of the doctrine and view that whatever an individual feels, pleasure, pain, neither pleasure nor pain, if they believe that it is entirely caused by what was done before, well, they slip past what they themselves know. They slip past what is agreed on by the world. Therefore, I say that those clergy or contemplatives are wrong. So what is it the Buddha is trying to convey here or teach? Well, the first thing I want to say is this. That the concept of fate is alien to Buddhism. You will not find anywhere in the Buddhist scriptures, sutras, any reference to the idea of fate as a part of the teachings of the Buddha. And why is this? Because fate is built on the idea that our lives are predetermined. Fate is based on the idea that our lives are predetermined. And if you really believe in that sense of predetermination, then there's no free will. And there's really no point to making choices. So Buddhism rejects, if you will, the idea, as the Buddha says in the actual sutra writing, that those who believe that whatever individual feels was caused by what was done before, it doesn't hold water. It doesn't really hold water to our experience, and I'll explain why. Now, one thing you could say is that there is a sense of destiny in Buddhism. And the idea, ultimately, is that we're all destined to realize our, our true selves, or our Buddha nature. So you could say that the destiny of all sentient beings throughout the cosmos is Buddha. So destiny, yes, but fate, no. 
destiny, but not predestination. So what did the Buddha teach? So the Buddha taught a doctrine that we call karma. And as I said, karma, uh, or as often people say, karma is spoken about in a way that seems to essentially be another way of talking about fate. So karma, in a lot of folks' minds, uh, is equated with fate. But this would be incorrect from a Buddhist point of view. And the Buddhist idea of karma really was not so much about the actions that we take. In a sense, you could say karma is cause and effect. But the Buddhist interest was not so much in what deeds we've done. The Buddhist interest was in the karma of the psyche, the karma of the mind. In fact, you could say that that was almost exclusively the domain of the Dharma. To talk about the mind and how the mind creates cause and effect through the process that we know as the chain of interdependent causation or origination. And in the way we talk about it in the four directions system of mindfulness, it's pretty simple, very clear that our experiences of consequence are the result of our actions. Those actions, in turn, are the result of the feelings that we have. And those feelings, in turn, are based on the thoughts that we are having. And those thoughts, in turn, are based on the beliefs that we accumulate. So you see there's this chain of cause and effect. It starts with the beliefs that we've been conditioned with, the thoughts that arise in our daily life through experiences, the feelings that are created by those thoughts, the actions or inactions that are brought about by those feelings, and the consequences that are the result of those actions. That's karma. So if you take nothing else away from tonight, the Buddhist concept of karma is that. So we can change our karma by working with the various practices of meditation, precepts, and mindfulness. But that's the way it flows, and that's the inherent meaning there. And then the idea is that that action that takes place in the mind, that's the stuff that predisposes us to either neurosis or well-being. And it creates a kind of loop in the mind. So that if we don't change certain things on that chain, we're going to continue to experience the same result over and over again. In traditional language, that was called the wheel of samsara, or the wheel of suffering. But if we make changes in that causative chain, that same wheel can become the wheel of nirvana. Another reason why that passage by Chesterton would not really fit with the words attributed to Shakyamuni is that the Buddha never really talked about what he believed. What he would talk about was what he had seen, what he knew, 
or through his own experimentation, what he had realized. So belief was not something that the Buddha spoke of. He talked about the things that he saw, the things that he could, you know, kind of work with or experiment with, and then the realizations that come out of that creative experimentation. So there was a sense of knowing, not believing. And it's interesting because the word knowing is rooted in a Greek word, gnosis. And the word gnosis is a kind of knowledge that implies a sense of oneness. In the Gnostic language, the experience of Gnosis was oneness with God or the Brahman. And so this idea of knowing that you find in Buddhism is related to the same sense. That it's not so much what I believe, but what I know. There was an interview that was done with Carl Jung, the famous psychologist, the pioneering psychotherapist. And he was asked one time, does he, did he, does he believe in God? Did he believe in God? And Jung famously said, I don't believe in God. I know God. And so he was implying that knowing or that Gnostic sense that we're talking about here. So remember that, that Buddhism is not primarily a belief system, but a spiritual praxis. Buddhism is not primarily a belief system, but a spiritual praxis. So let me go further now into the passage of the words attributed to Shakyamuni. When we talk about what we have done, we're usually referring to the immediate or the long ago past. And the idea that Shakyamuni talks about here is that some people believe that everything is entirely caused by what was done before. And he's saying, you know what? Even when you say that, you know it's not true. You can know it just by observation, that this isn't so. And when we say or suggest that everything we are now is based entirely on what we have done, well, the main problem with that is it ignores the possibility of choosing right now how we're going to relate to the experiences of the past. So that's what he's criticizing. He's saying if you believe that, then there's no room for free will anymore. There's no room for making choices anymore. And we go back to the, the chain of interdependent origination or causation, it becomes very clear. If I've had thoughts and beliefs that are creating certain types of feelings and actions and therefore consequences, if I want to change the future, what I have to change are the thoughts and beliefs that are at the root of the rest of that causative flow. And if I do that, I will change the karma. I will change the consequence. So for Buddha, karma was freedom. Karma was liberty, quite different from the way that some Eastern traditions might teach about it as some sort of cosmic retribution. But rather, he saw it as freedom, because everything is not fixed. Shunyata, 
were empty. Therefore, everything can be changed. No one's fated to any particular end because of a prior. They can change by choosing how they relate to that difference. I'm going to give you some real examples of that too. Reality, and this is what the Buddha is referring to, he says they slip past what they themselves know. He also speaks here a little bit of, you know, like, uh, sounds like a little bit like Yoda. If, you, if, you ever, uh, if you're a fan of Star Wars and you've ever uh, listened to interviews of George Lucas, he will tell you that some of the ways within Yoda's followed was the ways that some people think Shakyamuni spoke. <laughs> so there's some interesting parallels there. And you certainly get that when you begin to study or read the, the sutras or scriptures. But what, what the Buddha is saying is, if we look at the world, and he says that, you know, they slip past themselves what they know. They slip past what was agreed on by the world. What he's saying here is, is that reality shows us that good deeds are bad ones. Good deeds are bad ones. Don't dictate life. It's not hard for us to point to people who seemingly do bad deeds, but end up with awfully good rewards. And it's also not hard for us to see people who do good deeds that seem to end up with uh, like lambs to the slaughter. And there was a famous book written some years ago by a rabbi named Harold Kushner. And that book was famously called Why Bad Things Happen to Good People. It's a great koan. It's a great question. But all the Buddha is referring to here is not to get lost in the meaning of that question. Why do good things happen to bad people? Or <laughs> why do bad things happen to good people? He's just pointing out that if you believe in this, this sort of very simpleton equation, you're ignoring what you see before your own eyes. So whatever's going on with karma is more is more complicated or deeper than that, or it doesn't relate to karma at all. And I kind of think that's what he's getting at. He's saying that his teaching of karma doesn't have anything to do with the way people normally think about it. And that isn't to say that there isn't some causative relationship, you know, between, you know, like you would find in the Bible, whatever you sow, you shall reap, right? What the Buddha's saying is, yeah, I can see that sometimes, but other times it doesn't seem to hold that at all. People sow lots of things and they reap different things. Now that seems to be contradictory, right? Because if you throw a corn seed into the ground, you're going to get corn. You're not going to get watermelons. So he wasn't ignoring that type of causative relationship. He was talking about this bigger idea that people have about fate, and predestination. And that the past will always haunt you. The sins of the father should be delivered upon the children. He's just pointing out that in reality that doesn't seem to happen. And in fact, most people that hold to that have to go to some sort of supernatural or cosmic background to make it all fit. But in our experience, a lot of bad guys end up with a lot of good things. And a lot of good people end up with bad things. That's all the Buddha's saying. That's what he means by those words. And that's one of the things I love about the Buddha. He's very straightforward, very plain-spoken. And he, he tells you to rely on your own experience. Don't believe it because he says it or some sacred sage or clergy or someone says it. 
Trust your own experience. Trust your own So, I want to bring this home. The Buddhist focus was primarily on the karma of the psyche. Now, what's interesting about this is you can think of this also in a scientific term, that one's karma, in part, is the sort of biophysical, psychological stuff that we receive from our genetic, neurological, psychological, and social cultural factors that have influenced us, conditioned us, and we are pretty much a product of it. And in our teachings, we talk about the way every human being goes through five stages of development. The traditional language for those is skandhas, and you can also talk about them as just aggregates or stages. But what the Buddha is also referring to here in terms of karma is that we all go through these conditions. And these conditionings form what we call the ego self. And that that is not our true self, but that is the conditioned reaction of us in this world, in this time and place. And so we can also think of karma as the development of the ego self and the way that it's conditioned. Now here's something that's really important in talking about. Free will would only be possible if we could change those forces of condition. Free will would only be possible if we could change those forces of condition. And again, I think this is where the Buddha is trying to help us to be very clear about this. And, and we can say that something like the Four Directions process that we teach is an example of this, how we can, over, we can learn to overcome those preconditioned factors. But what he's saying is, is there are some things in the past you can't change. You can't change an action in the past. That action is already done. And sometimes it may be impossible to go back and change something from the past. So he's also pointing out in his skepticism that those ideas, that somehow you could go back and make amends for things and make everything all right, that that often is just not possible. And sometimes the, the drive that people have to make amends is simply they want to feel better. And they're not really concerned with the people they're trying to make an amend to. The person they're making amends to might not be ready for their amendment. <laughs> Remember our word amends goes with the word amendment. They may not be ready for your amendment. And it might make you feel good to get it off your shoulders and confess and try to make it up to them. But that may not be what they want. And whatever you do, it might not change it. So the point here that, that the Buddha, I believe, is trying to make is that that kind of change, going back into the past, is not possible. But... What is possible is to change a belief or thought. And that includes memories. So if something in the past happened, right? And I'm going to give you some concrete examples of this. If something in the past happened, I can't change what happened. But I can change how I relate to that memory. I can change how I relate to that memory. 
which will change not only the present, but will help shape the future. And in fact, the Buddha's emphasis is that if we can't learn to relate differently to the past, then there's no hope for freedom. Let me say that again. If we can't learn to relate differently to the past, then there's no hope for freedom. So let me give you a couple of stories. The first one I want to talk about is a person that I work with, a person who came to me for counsel and direction. That person had experienced, according to their what they told me, they had experienced abuse when they were younger by a parent. Now, I don't know what actually happened in the past, but this is what my client believed. And so it doesn't really matter to me whether it actually happened or not. What matters to me more than anything is what they believe. And the thing about memories is this. Memories are very unreliable. One of the things we've learned from the scientific study of the mind, of the brain, of neurology, is that memories don't so much represent the factual history, but rather memories are the interpretive history. That's what science shows. That it's not so much that we're recalling facts, but we're interpreting an experience. And that's very important. Because that plays into the unreliability of our recall of past experiences. And in fact, there in, in, in the legal system in America, uh, this has come to the surface in the sense that uh, two ways. One, uh, there was a time uh, back in the 70s where there were lots of children who were claiming that they had been ritually and sexually abused by different people that were their caregivers or their guardians. And there was what they called the satanic panic. And they were, they were saying that they were Satanists and that they were doing these different things to them. And it, it very much became a part of popular lore. And I'm not saying that something like that may have never happened. I'm not saying that. I'm just saying that in these famous cases, time after time, these children were coming forward. Now, these children often were, be, were given hypnotic regression to, to recall buried memories. Here's the thing. They weren't true. When it all came out, when it all washed out, they weren't true. The memories that they were saying that such and such happened weren't true. Now, lives were ruined. Lives were ruined. But it came out to be false. Not dissimilar to the Salem Witch Trials. Same thing happened then. And it goes on a lot today in pop culture. But here's the point. With this particular person, that's what they believed. Oh, the other thing I was going to mention is that in a court of law, eyewitness testimony is often useless. People think that if someone saw something, that what they're telling you is actually what happened. But again, it's that interpretive factor. 
But for the sake of counseling and this person, I'm going to accept what they're telling me because for them, that's the basis, that's the past events that they say are now dictating their life. And this person came to me and said, you know, I've been to four or five different therapists and they've all told me or taught me that this experience is something that will always be with me and it will be a lens through which I define myself in the world. And you know what I said? I disagree. Now, I'm not lacking in any compassion or empathy for what this person may have experienced, not at all. However, I don't agree with them. I don't agree that an experience in the past that we have, even a really bad one, has to define who we are or how we see the world, or we have to carry that like a chain around our neck for the rest of our lives. That's ridiculous. It's nonsense. There's no freedom then. There's no hope for freedom, as I just said. So in that particular case, I just asked the person to try out that idea. Try out the idea that this experience that you had in the past, which was by your own memory and your own recall, a very negative experience, that that was an experience that you had. You now have the freedom to relate to it any way you want to. And you can relate to it the way you have been, which is leading you to a life of isolation and sorrow and depression and a lack of any meaningful engagement in relationships, or you can change the way you think and believe about that past event. You can relate to it differently. And to her credit, she experimented with what I offered her. And the, the, the proof is, as they say in the pudding, as, as she went on in her practice, it went deeper and deeper, and she became clearer and clearer. She was transformed. She went from living alone in isolation to getting involved in a relationship. Even, even reconciling with the parent that she believed in abuse. So anything is possible, and that's the thing. Once a person begins to live out of their true self, anything is possible. The past does not have to dictate the present. And it certainly doesn't have to put a stranglehold on the future. And that's what the Buddha is saying in the sutras. That's the point he's making. His teaching, his dharma, is that we can change the way we relate to the karma of the past the karma of our thoughts and beliefs about experiences. That's the powerful thing. And we don't have to hold on. In that case, that example I gave you is someone doing something to that person. What if you're the person? What if you're the person in the past that you did something that others considered very hurtful or harmful? What do you do with it? What can you do? Well, for most people, they either try to repress it, in which case uh, it doesn't go away. It just comes out in other ways than the actual memory of what happened. And repression, things come out. You know, we teach that the psyche is a closed system. And so energy is going to somehow find a way. 
So if you try to push it down here, it's going to squeeze out there. And often when people are suffering from different forms of mental maladies or they're suffering from physical problems, it's because of repression. So that doesn't really work. The other was the person who's constantly guilty and obsessing and worried and haunted by the ghosts of the past. Likewise, that person's result is suffering. So even with those things, one can repent of what a woman has done. And what does that mean? It simply means that you recognize that whatever path you were taking there that resulted in those actions, that that's not... That does not lead to oneness. That is not clear. And so to repent means literally to be walking down a path and realizing you're on the road, the wrong road, and you take another one. So certainly that is what the Buddha admonished. And the final example I'll give you is from the experiences that I had both personally with some persons, some people, and also from the literature, the great body of data and literature about it. And that's the near-death experience. One of the most fascinating things about the near-death experience is the commonality that people have, regardless of culture. And the most fascinating thing to me that comes through, and I actually had a person who had a near-death experience tell me this, that when they you know, went towards the light and they had that sense of the tunnel and all that uh, same sort of shared experience that people talk about, when they came before the presence of what they would always express is unconditional love. And sometimes they would talk about that as a figure from their culture conditioning. So if they were a Buddhist, they'd see a Buddhist figure. If they were Christian, they'd see a Christian figure, and so forth and so on. If they didn't have any particular religious background, sometimes they'd experience that as a, a loved one, a beloved, a beloved person who had passed before them. But at any rate, when they come before this, I remember this person telling me, he said, you know, I came before the presence of this great boundless love, this being who was just... I had never felt that way before. Such, such love that was thick, like swimming through it. And my first thought was, of all the terrible things I had done in my life, and all the things that I had not done that I should have done, and all the mistakes I made. And in a sense, I was presenting them to this being, right? And the being was like, we're not interested in that. Tell us what you created with your life. Tell us what you shared of love. Tell us what wisdom you brought to us. And he was shocked when he came back out of his near-death experience. That was the biggest thing that he told me he carried with him, was that they didn't care about any of that. All they cared about were the things that brought life not the things that were destructive. They weren't interested in that. They were only interested in the things of life and love. And so from that moment on, and that's one of the things unique about the near-death experience, it changes people. He was not focusing anymore on the mistakes he made. He was only focused on the things that he could do 
to enrich the life of those he loved and those that he came into contact with in the future. So, in summary, in Buddhism, there is no idea of fate. Our destiny is to be Buddha. So regardless of how long that takes, ultimately that's what we will become. And the karma of the past, we can change the present and the future by the way that we relate to those thoughts and beliefs and memories. And we have the freedom. And the Four Directions process is, a, in my opinion, a very excellent example of how one can learn to do that. And it doesn't take a long time either. A person who begins that path will find that the fruits come forth very quickly. So I hope that was helpful to you, and I hope that will encourage you.